Scripture this morning is taken from Romans, the second chapter, verses 3 and 4. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Once again, it's a delight to see all of you here this morning. I appreciate your presence because that is indicative of your spiritual interest, and that means a great deal. And uh, as our number here in the building continues to grow, I think each week it's just uh, it's more obvious to, to me sitting down front at the power and the vibrancy of the singing. I think I said something about the singing last Sunday morning, and somebody, a uh, brother, gave me a call and said, you know, we're singing at home too. And I said... <laughs> Yeah, but I can't hear you, and I have no idea whether that's good stuff or bad stuff, but uh, it it is good stuff. And and those of you that are joining us online, we're delighted that you're doing that. Just regretful that the circumstances continue to be such that 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 is uh, necessary, but uh, we're glad that you're here, too, in the building this morning. Also glad that things work out the way they do. Art and I were just briefly having a conversation before services started, and he said, for some reason, the, the lesson that I'm preaching this morning, I preached this lesson seven years ago, and he said that that lesson came to mind, and, and he was about to call the church office to ask for a copy of it uh, when he found out that, guess what, I'm preaching it again this Sunday. And so I'm glad that worked out. I'm glad I could be of service to Art. But this, this is even more recent. This morning I was uh, paging through a songbook and I saw the song Nearer Still Nearer and I thought it's been a long time since we sang that. I wish that we would sing that. Thank you, Art. <laughs> We're even. This is Fundamental Sunday and so that explains the topic of our conversation for the next few minutes. The accounts abound in the various news media. For example, this, this comes from the, a page in, on a real newspaper from real life. A man ventured into the off-limits area of a train yard, was hit by a train, managed to survive, and upon recovery sued the, the railroad yard for neglect, despite the fact that he had ignored all the signs saying, do not enter this area. Another perfect example of that is a young man who kills his parents, murders them, and then gets upset at the trial because he receives no mercy as an orphan. You know, we have a, in, in the spiritual realm the tendency to bite the divine hand that feeds us as well. We sometimes want to go against the grain of spiritual law and then complain about the splinters. But one of the strangest phenomena among us as humans is our remarkable ability to get ourselves into serious trouble and then immediately to refuse to accept the accountability and responsibility for those actions, to blame others, and then watch this, even sometimes get angry at God because there are consequences for those actions. I remember sitting in an office one time talking to a man whose marriage dissolved, watch this, because of his unfaithfulness. And yet the primary question that he kept asking over and over again was, how can God let this happen to me? You know, our God has told us, you reap what you sow, Galatians 6, verse 7. There are consequences for actions. And sometimes those actions are a violation of the will of God. 
and they require what the Bible calls repentance. And that's going to be the topic of our study for just a few minutes this morning. You might remember that in the Old Testament, David knew full well that nobody was to touch the Ark of the Covenant except the priests. And yet the Bible makes it very clear in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that when Uzzah violated that command and was stricken dead, David got angry at God. That's kind of human nature, isn't it? But it's human nature that we need to get over because he was exactly wrong about that. And I suppose it never really occurred to to David to blame the violator. Well, if you read the text, actually it did, but much later on. As someone has said in Eden, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. We're always trying to blame someone else for the errancy of our actions and the consequences that we suffer because of those actions. In fact, on the other side of the coin, we admire the former president who many years ago put this inscription on his desk in the Oval Office that simply said, the buck stops here. At some point in our spiritual lives, we've got to have that kind of integrity and that kind of resolve to say, I'm the one who's messed up. I'm this one who has has violated God's will. I have sinned, and therefore I will repent. The human saga continues, indicating man's unwillingness to acknowledge his own sins, to accept the blame for those sins, and then to take the personal responsibility in having those sins forgiven and corrected. The juvenile delinquent may blame his parents, and yet there are many children who grow up with less than ideal parents who still grow up well. The thief blames others for his thievery because he tells everyone who will listen that nobody ever gave him anything when he was growing up. The adulterer blames his loveless and uncaring maid, and yet there are many who live and and, and who exist with less than ideal marriages who are never unfaithful. The liar attempts to justify his lying because he says, I've been lied to. The selfish person says nobody ever gave him anything. And on and on we go ad infinitum ad nauseum. And yet in our text, if you'll look again at Romans chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, I really want us to notice, although James read it wonderfully a moment ago, I want us to think about the content of this passage and its applicability to our own lives. Paul is simply telling us, if we can boil all of this down to one central truth, that when God calls us into judgment to give an account for the way we've lived our lives, Romans 14 and verse 12 says that every one of us will do exactly that. We will give an account of ourselves before God. But in our text, Paul is saying that when we do that, we're going to face the fact that, that God himself was not responsible for my failure. He will not accept the blame for my transgressions. He, all he's ever been to me is good and kind and fair. And Paul ends those two verses by saying that the goodness of God, I think we noticed this last Sunday morning as well, the goodness of God ought to lead us to repentance. That we ought not to interpret that as leniency or indifference on God's behalf. God's goodness should lead us to want to repent and be right with him. And yet how seldom do we find even in scripture that simple but profound confession, I have sinned. That might be a challenge to you to go through Old and New Testament and find out how many times in the Bible you find those three words together. The Bible teaches that rather than attempting to justify our sin, rather than trying to rationalize our errant behavior and blame God for the consequences, here's the solution. We just need to come to God in sincere repentance. It's that simple, and yet many times it's also that difficult. 
You see, our, re- our reaction to the teaching and the preaching of God's word may be that we either repent of, of our sins because our hearts have been touched by the message of God, or we might actually resent. So those pretty much are the two options. We repent or we resent. And, and, and what, whether we do one or the other tells us everything about the heart of the person who needs to have that viable relationship with God. Some get angry at the messenger. I, I know that surprises you, but sometimes people get angry at the messenger because of the message. And, and, and that happened even in Paul's own ministry. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, I remind you that this is a book, a letter written to Christians. And in that verse, in that chapter, he says, Do I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So apparently, even when Paul was preaching to the Galatians and writing this letter to them, there were those who resented him because of the message that he brought. And yet I want us to understand and to deeply appreciate that there's more involved in repentance than just sorrow over the consequences of sin. Sincere repentance, biblically defined, involves the following three elements. And I want to touch on those briefly, then the lesson will be yours. First of all, there is a sense of sin. And by a sense of sin, I mean just an awareness of our sin. Because people will not repent of sins of which they're not aware. That just makes sense, doesn't it? In fact, repentance is a conscious act. And understanding that I violated God's will, I've transgressed his word, and so I, I, I'm, in, I'm in a relationship with God that I don't want to be in. I'm, I'm ostracized in a sense. I am, have separated myself from God, and that's exactly what Isaiah said in Isaiah 59.1. God's hand is not short that he cannot save. His ear is not dull that he cannot hear. It is our iniquities that have separated between us and our God. And so we need to understand that that is the principal factor in play. And that's true. That's an Old Testament passage, but it's still true in New Testament times. And, and when we need to repent, we need to understand how, how that matter works. So repentance being a conscious act, it, it requires a conscious awareness of the fact that there is sin in my life that needs to be repented of. That's just common sense. And even if the good book didn't say it, I think that we would all know that intuitively. And so the great task of the prophet Nathan, you remember in the Old Testament, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, was to get King David aware of the fact that he had actually committed sin. When he sinned with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah killed, apparently he was blissfully un, unaware of the fact that that was a bad thing. And so God sent Nathan, the prophet, to him to tell him that you need to repent. What you have done is horrible. It's ten times worse than horrible. While David was not aware of that, but having done that, and David having accepted that, receiving that message the right way, you then have Psalm 51 that indicates the depth of David's repentance. So the greatest task, I think, of preaching today is convicting people of their sin. There's just a rule of evangelism that says you cannot convert until you first convict. And that's true, I think, in any society, in any continent around this world. Now, several things stand in the way of real repentance in our lives, and, and I think some of these you'll find in Scripture, but most of them you'll see played out in real life around us today. And, and by real life, I mean in current times. This is real life that we're reading about in Scripture as well. But sometimes people are convinced that, and this probably would describe a lot of people in our own culture, that what they're doing is really not so bad at all. That is, they don't really understand the sinful nature 
of their action. Therefore, they're not aware of the reality that they need to, to make that right with God. So what I've done isn't that bad. And they really think that, I guess, that preachers were just invented to keep people from having a, a good time. You know what I'm talking about. Sometimes people want to compare themselves to other people. Paul talked about the foolishness of that, by the way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Check that verse out sometime. And, and it really is true that if you want to minimize sin in your own life, just look around because you will always be able to find somebody whose sin is more egregious than your own. But that's one of the ways that we go about rationalizing sin in our life. And then sometimes you'll find this. Some get angry at the narrow-mindedness of anybody that would dare try to convince them that what they have done is wrong, that it's sinful, and that they need to take measures in order to correct that. The people just get angry. That, that's their, their defensive reaction to that kind of message. In fact, Thayer defines, maybe we should have started with this, defines repentance like this, to change one's mind for the better, to heartily amend with abhorrence of sin. And obviously, we must first be aware of our sin in order to be able to abhor or detest that sin. Remember in Luke chapter 15, the Bible clearly says that the prodigal son had to first come to himself before he made that journey back home to his father's house. And I think there's a tremendous amount of meaning and significance in that little phrase, he came to himself. That just means that he was aware of his relationship now for the very first time with his own father back at home. I remind you that the father represents God. The prodigal son represents us any time that we either knowingly or perhaps unknowingly have left our father's house and his fellowship and we have gone to the far country of sin. But we need to come home. That's the real thrust of the parable of the prodigal son. But he first had to come to himself. And that's true today, 2021. When someone is outside of a viable, healthy relationship with God, the first thing that that man or woman has to do is to come to themselves, to realize what kind of sinful situation that they're in, and that I cannot, I cannot fix this myself. I cannot do for me what only Christ and his redeeming blood can do for me. And the mercy and the grace of God can cover every one of my sins, even the worst of sins. But I've got to first realize that, come to myself, and make the determination, as the prodigal son did, that I want to go home and I want to make things right with my father. You may also remember that the Jews had to be told plainly on the day of Pentecost, as per Peter's recorded lesson there in Acts chapter 2. They had to be told that they were the ones responsible for the death of our Lord. They, they killed the Messiah. They nailed him to the tree. Before verse 37 says that they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? That is, we want to know how we rectify that. How can we correct that? They were made aware of the seriousness of their sin. Only then did they ask that question in verse 37. What do we do about that? And then Peter replied the way he did in verse 38, repent and be, there it is, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. I, I doubt very seriously that the Pentecostians had a full understanding of what that forgiveness entailed. But surely, surely, 2,000 years later, those of us who've spent our lives reading and studying this book and trying to apply it have a full understanding a fuller understanding of how wonderful it is to know that we can pillow our heads at night and be forgiven by an almighty and sovereign God. That God is willing to wipe away every one 
of our sins. Folks, you cannot buy that with money. The only thing that can purchase that for you and for me is the blood of Jesus Christ. But how does a person get that sense or awareness of sin? Well, the Bible answered that question too. David said this in Psalm 119, verse 104, Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. What did you say, David? It is through your precepts that I get understanding. So please don't miss that. That is an important ingredient in this equation that we're discussing this morning. Only through instruction in the word of God will people gain a sense of sin. And that's because, at least in part, that John says in 1 John 3, 4, that sin is lawlessness. The King James says it is that, that sin is a violation of God's will. It is, the, the Greek word there literally means a stepping across God's fixed boundaries. I've, I've seen that God has said, placed certain things outside the parameter of what we ought to be doing, thinking, or talking about. And yet I've still done that. I've violated it. I've, I've gone across the, the barrier that says no trespassing, and I've violated God's will. So I've done that. Sometimes I have done that consciously. And that's going to require a conscious rectification of that, at least an acknowledgement of that. And, and, and John chapter, and, and Randy quoted that a moment ago when we were around the table, is, is that when I confess that before God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, that's got to be one of the greatest verses in all the Bible, doesn't it? First John chapter 1 and verse 9. You might want to type that out and put that on your bathroom mirror and be reminded of that every day. But Paul even said in Romans 7 verse 7 that he would not have known sin without being made aware of God's law. That is the standard to be violated. Here's what he said about it in that, in that particular passage. Again, Romans 7 and verse 7, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. That makes sense. That's true spiritually. It's also true civilly. That is in, 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 our, in our modern society. I need to be aware of the law before I recognize that, hey, I've broken that law. And I'm culpable for the consequences and whatever might happen to me because I violated that. That's why all who come to God, Jesus said in John 6, verse 45, everyone who comes to God must first of all be taught of God. We've got to know the standard. Because we have to learn what God does and does not expect of us as a critical part of our approach to him and in being right with him. Common sense just dictates that you're not going to repent of sins of which you're not aware. And, and preaching is not always the most appreciated profession. Because a vital part of preaching God's message is helping people to be made aware of their sins. And sometimes, folks, that can be a very painful an uncomfortable thing. So repentance involves a sense of sin. But then in the second place, it also involves a sorrow for sin. Not just in a sense or an awareness, but also a corresponding sorrow for that sin. Are you sorry for what you've done? Are you sorry for the way that you've lived? Listen to a couple of passages that are very relevant to this discussion. One of them comes from James chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Here's what James says by inspiration. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Now, by the way, let me say that James was not a killjoy. James was not saying that if you're grinning, you're sinning. 
That, that if you're happy and you're laughing and you're, and you're a, a, a happy person, then that's, that's a violation of God's will for you. That's not what he's saying at all. He is saying when you consider the weight of your sins, you ought to be crying, not laughing. That's the essence of it. But then he, he goes on to say, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And then Paul says, better known passage, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10. You might even want to turn there and take a look at it. 2 Corinthians 7 just two verses where Paul says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. That is, I didn't write my first letter to you just in order to, in order to make you feel bad. And once you did, I was happy about that. that. That's what he's saying in that verse. But that your joy, that your sorrow should, should lead to repentance. For you made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. What's verse 10? You're familiar with this verse, surely. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, we've talked about that passage enough in Bible classes. I think most of us understand what, what Paul is talking about here. But note that not just any sorrow will do, Paul says. In light of and in, in the awareness of our sins, not just any sorrow is appropriate, but it's godly sorrow, as opposed to the other side of the coin, which is worldly sorrow. Now, there have been a lot of illustrations on the difference in godly and worldly sorrow. And some have suggested that the difference is found in the person who is sincerely sorry for the fact that I have broken God's law and also understanding that when I break God's law, I also break his heart. That's the person who has godly sorrow. As opposed to the person on the other side who has worldly sorry, sorrow, and that is, he's just sorry that he got caught. Sorry that there are consequences to his or her actions. I think the most obvious difference in the two appears after the sorrow. What, what's this, this timeline, if you will, with me for a moment? What happens after you are made aware of your sin and then you've come to be sorry for what you've done? Paul is very clear about that in those two verses. He says, godly sorrow produces repentance, while worldly sorrow does not. By the way, notice, please, that it pro godly sorrow, even the right kind of sorrow, only produces repentance. It isn't repentance, but it can produce or bring it about. So godly sorrow is a kind of sorrow, I think, if we want to illustrate this biblically, that was experienced by Peter in Matthew twenty six seventy five, After denying the Lord three times, you know the story. The Bible says he went out and he wept bitterly. And sometimes that's the only thing we can do, at least at first, when we're made aware of our sin. And the fact that we've broken God's heart. It just spend some time crying about it, and that's what Peter did. And then also the people that we mentioned a moment ago on the day of Pentecost that were converted... And who heard that they were the ones responsible for nailing our Savior to the tree. And they said, what, what shall we do? How do we rectify that? Peter said, repent and be baptized. And, and, and these were people who were responding appropriately to the understanding that, that I'm not right with God right now. But I can get right because Jesus offers me that opportunity. And the Bible even says they were cut to the heart. There's your godly sorrow. You know, God has always used broken things to great benefit. Sometimes it's broken soil. Sometimes it's broken clouds or broken corn, but most of all, it's broken hearts. 
So we don't need to be stubborn and rebellious in our sin is the message of God's word because a heart broken by contrition over sin will be made glad. Psalm 32 verse 8 says, listen to a part of David's penitential psalm in Psalm 51. I want to be reading from verse 8, skip down to verse 12. Make me, David prayed. Here, here he is recognizing the, and, and aware, very much aware of the fact that he sinned egregiously before God. And he says, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. I have been hurting up to now. And, and I can't live this way any longer is basically what David is confessing. And then in verse 12 he says, restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your free spirit. And there may be people in this room this morning who are right there. And who are saying, I need the joy of my salvation restored. Because I'm not experiencing joy right now. I'm aware of of my transgressions, of my sin. I know that this is not what God wants for me. And I'm not reaching my, my highest, greatest potential because of the reality of sin in my life. And like David, we just need to confess it. And make it right with God. Folks, I'm telling you that the most disastrous drought in all this world is the dearth of penitential tears. We need more people crying over sin. We need more of us as God's people weeping over the reality of sin in our lives and how it has infiltrated our homes and how it has infiltrated our world. And when we begin to take sin that seriously, I think we'll take the necessary steps, the formula, the spiritual formula that God has provided for us to make sure that we're right with God again. I mean, Jeremiah in his own day said, hey, listen, that's not a new problem. He dealt with that during his own work as a prophet of God. Were they ashamed? This is Jeremiah 8, verse 12. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Doesn't that sound like today's newspaper? Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, he answers. Neither could they blush. Man, that's that's our world, isn't it? It used to be that When we were embarrassed, we blushed. And now we blush, or we're embarrassed if we blush. Jeremiah said, I I know what that's like. Remember, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, 17. But that brings us to our, our our last point. There must also, in addition to a sorrow for sin, or a sense of sin, and then a sorrow for sin, There must also be a cessation of sin. There's a great, I think, and destructive misunderstanding presently pervading the religious world. And sadly, sometimes even in our own brotherhood, that champions the idea that if you are sorry for your sin, then you've repented. That's all that's involved. If you'll just be contrite and be sorry and maybe cry a tear or two over your sin, then that's repentance. But the Bible clearly teaches that repentance is not complete until a person actually ceases from their sinful ways. That's where we get the word cessation. Matthew chapter 12, 41 states that the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. So we're looking for someone that God himself actually said that they repented. And then we can lock in on to how that worked in their experience. So this is a case study of some people that God himself said they repented. That's, again, Matthew 12, verse 41, looking back on Jonah's preaching to the Ninevites. Now, you couple that with a statement that you actually find in the book of Jonah, and that's chapter 3, verse 10, where it says this, they turned from their evil way. Want to know what repentance is? Then there you have it. 
It is turning from your evil way. It is turning your back on sin, turning your face toward Jesus, determined and recommitting yourself to living the way that God would have you to live. And then in Matthew chapter 21, 29, we read about the son who said that he would not go and work in his father's vineyard, but the Bible says he later repented and he went. Let me ask you this simple question. What if he had just stopped at being regretful? You know, he's sorry that, that that he's hurt his father's feelings. What if you'd sat back and said to him, I'm sorry I hurt dad's feelings. I hope he won't take it out on me. And I sure hope this won't make for an awkward relationship between me and my father. And that's all he did. Well, whatever that is, it isn't repentance. He repented, the Bible says, and that's the point of the whole story. He repented only when his regret motivated him to get up and actually do what his father had told him to do in the first place. So repentance is a change of mind. It is prompted by godly sorrow that results in a change of life. And if the life isn't changed, folks, then it wasn't repentance. As Christians, I think we need to bear that in mind. And I say this as judiciously as I know how. We need to bear that in mind when we come forward and sit on the front pew at the invitation song and ask for the prayers of the church. We need to make sure that we are, in fact, repenting and not just reporting. Because just reporting our sins will do no good. There must be a corresponding determination to not sin again. That is to turn our, we may be confessing some specific sin. Whatever it is that we're dealing with in our lives, whatever it is that keeps us from God, we need to repent of that sincerely and from the depths of our heart. John told the Pharisees and the Sadducees to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. That's Matthew 3 and verse 8. That is, you need to demonstrate by your own track record, by your life, by the way you, you act from this day forward, that you have, in fact, repented. That's what fruits worthy of repentance all means. And then again, back to the prodigal son in Luke 15. He repented, and in doing so, he did an about face, and he went back home, and he made things right with his father. And if you've been hearing me preach for years now, you know that I love Luke 15. I love that passage. It is so powerful and and it's so relevant because it speaks to the very things that we're dealing with today. And it does it in such a beautiful and compassionate way. In fact, some people have called Luke 15 uh, the, the essence of the gospel because everything that you need to get right with God is found in that one chapter. But I'm just telling you, if he had tears in a pig pen did not constitute repentance. The prodigal son repented only by getting up and going back and making things right with his father again. And, and you know that, and I know that as well. Only then was his repentance complete. Marshall Keeble used to tell about a little dog that was always snapping at his angle, ankles when he went out to take his morning walk. And he said, I got tired of it. And one day he said, I, I just wrapped that little dog on his head with my walking stick, and and he repented. (laughs) That is, he did an about face, and he went in the opposite direction. And that's biblical, because that's what repentance is. It's only when we do an about face, do a 180, and we go in the opposite direction of our sin, with the determination that I'm not going to do that ever again. The Bible clearly teaches that a person can't truly repent and continue in a sinful activity. And you can list all of them. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 gives you a pretty good list. 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 21 gives you another, 9 through 10 rather, gives you another list of, of things that God says that these are not appropriate. These are sins. These are transgressions of God's will. And whatever the sin might be, repentance is not complete until I've actually ceased from that activity. There will someday, folks, be a divine judgment of all humanity. And, and whether people know that or not, or whether they are willing to acknowledge that or not, is, is another matter. But it was, it was fear of destruction that brought the Ninevites to repent. That's clear in Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Jesus appealed to the same motive in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. And then at Mars Hill, and Paul said this, Acts 17, listen to verse 30, 31, then we're through. Truly, the times of ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to do what? Repent. Because he has. Here's the reason why repentance is imperative. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. He's talking about Jesus there. He has given assurance to all of us by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is why every one of us needs to repent. Because Jesus walked out of that tomb on Sunday morning. He is coming back. He is going to call each of us into account for the way that we've lived our lives, our words, our actions, and even our very thoughts. So the reality is the sinner needs to be brought face to face with the fact that we will someday stand in the presence of the Almighty God with eternity weighing in the balance and we will give an account for everything that we've done in this life if it has not been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And every single one of us will be there. All of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul asserts in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. But here is the really good news. Listen to Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And you may be thinking, but that's an Old Testament passage, Randy. You're exactly right. But this isn't relating to the law of Moses or even the patriarchal law for that matter. This is an eternal principle. Different law, same God, with the same attitude toward sin and the same attitude toward repentance. And if we'll turn to God in sincere repentance, he will abundantly pardon. There are people in this audience, I'm just aware and sure of that. In an audience this size, there are people here today who need to make some corrective measures in your life before you stand before God in judgment. There are just some things that you, if I may use that biblical word one more time, that you need to repent of. I've always said that if someone, and I've said that a number of times from this, from this pulpit, so this is not going to surprise you at all, but if someone, if you're sharing the word with someone and planting the seed of God's word in their hearts, and you get to the part where where we talk about the fact that you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins, and that person hesitates or even resists that idea. I mean, you know, they're right on the edge of the, of the baptistry, but they're just not willing to do that. They don't have a baptism problem. They have a repentance problem. Because, folks, let me tell you this. I know enough about human nature and enough about the Word of God to know that a person truly has repented, sincerely repented of all of our sins. We are willing to do anything that God calls upon us to do to get right with him. And if it's to be immersed in water, and it, those are the conditions from the day of Pentecost forward, Acts chapter 2, I'm more than willing to do that. I would be happy to do that. And I'd come up out of that water 
praising God for the blessing of forgiveness and the wonderful gift of redemption. The song we sing declares there's a great day coming. And then it asks the question, are you ready for that day to come? Back in 1892, William Kirkpatrick wrote the words to a song that I think is incredibly meaningful in a discussion like this. He writes, I've wandered far away from God. Now I'm coming home. The paths of sin, too long I've trod. Lord, I'm coming home. And then the chorus goes, coming home, coming home, never more to roam. Open wide thine arms of love. Lord, I'm coming home. If you need to come home this morning, we bid you do that right now while we stand and sing to encourage. Coming by and by, when the saints and the sinners.